Relating to Self. A podcast that helps you create a better relationship with yourself. Hey, I'm Joachim. Welcome. Do you realize that there is only one relationship that you will always be in? The relationship with yourself. Improving that relationship changes everything. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and I invite real people to have vulnerable conversations about how they relate to themselves and what we can learn from that. In today's episode, Joshua, who was our guest in season one, episode seven, comes back to ask me great questions. Enjoy. Joshua, it's so good to have you back on the Relating to Self podcast. Welcome. Joachim, it's good to be back. It's funny. I uh, feels like it's been a long time since I've seen you. I think it's been three weeks. But still, <laughs> Something like that. Time, time is funny that way. So yeah. yeah, it's a pleasure to have your face back on my screen and your sonorous tones in my ear. Yes. It's also because you're far away, literally, like in geographical terms, I guess. It's true. Yes. I'm calling you from sunny Mexico City, where I have fled from Amazing. New York for a little while, enjoying the change of scenery. Yes. And I am still in Sofia. I know you are always <laughs> consistently. It's funny. I was uh, trying to punch in your time zone into a little time zone calculator app to figure out good meeting times. And it didn't have Sophia listed as a city. And I was like, <laughs> so I had to come up with like the closest analog that I could. So I put in Budapest. Is that correct? I don't know, actually. Oh, <laughs> I have no idea questions. about the time zone in Budapest. But. Okay, we should open up the lines. We can have some of the listeners dial in and tell us where how time zones work rather than Google it. <laughs> Excellent. Much more interesting. Excellent. So I took the time last night to uh, look at my calendar and saw that we had this meeting coming up. I remember when we scheduled this thing, it felt like it was like a month in the future. And then boom, here it was. I took the time. I sat down in a little cafe filled two pages of a tiny notebook with scribbles and crazy theories about topics to explore. But I started out with this notable thing. First of all, the format here, I don't know if you've explained it already in like a preamble. I'm interviewing you. <laughs> We're turning the mirror back on itself. Yes. Yes, indeed. So yeah. you were in season one and I checked it was episode seven of season one, actually, which is mm. awesome. And this is now see, um, season two. Uh, episode, well, 38, if you count all of them, I haven't yet decided if second season will have separate episode numbers. And so the first time you came on as a guest, and then I decided to have this experiment to turn the table and to be interviewed. Well, some people actually inquired about this, and I don't remember if you were one of them, but I thought it was fun to do this. We did a, a first version of this, the last episode of the first season, where Troy asked me questions. And then now I'm super happy to be subjected to the questioning that you have prepared for me. I think it's a brilliant idea. And I, you know, I love the idea. This is actually your way of disseminating the joy of broadcasting into the world. Be like, you enjoyed being a guest. You've enjoyed being a host. Let a thousand podcasts bloom. It was pretty fun. Um, fortunately, you know, it was I'm glad I had a little heads up and got to reflect. So I started out by making a list of the things that make you different than your average human being. So you're not allowed to blush, you know, like we're going to have to kind of like keep it. You know, I'll say mean things about you later, but like to start with, <laughs> to there is a, a certain unflappable quality that you possess, or apparently. So one of the questions that came to mind 
is whether you get angry. Now, we're not going to jump into that question, but I've seen you, you know, care about things. So we're going to put that on the shelf right now. One of the things that really stands out is that you've got a strong contrarian streak. You're kind of doing your own thing, but in a very agreeable way. And I was curious to kind of like have you opine about society at large and speak about what are the lies that society tells us? How do we deceive ourselves? And it's a pretty big, pretty general bucket that it really stood out as something juicy. Um, the contrarian thing, I feel like we could you know, riff on for a very long time. So I'm going to save some of the juicy questions for that later. Um, one of the things that occurred to me is you have a tremendous amount of freedom in your life. I also have a tremendous amount of freedom. I occasionally will describe it as the terrifying freedom. I'm just saying like, you can do anything. You can be anywhere. You can hang out with whom you please. Who do you choose to hang out with? And a pretty fascinating, pretty intriguing possibility. So I want to understand a little more about how you design your day. Got more. Again, a whole notebook over here. So I don't know how many we're going to get the hit. Um, one of the things that was jumped out is that you have this kind of mentorship dynamic, right? That you help kind of provide guidance for individuals. I was curious to hear more about people who provided guidance for you in your life. Uh, see where that stands out. And similarly, like role models, like you, to me, are an ageless entity of air and light. You don't exactly, <laughs> are they older? Are they younger role models? You might have like a, a seven-year-old niece who is a good role model. Who knows? I'm leading the witness. The last one that I'm going to put on the table is I know you run these New Year's workshops and you help people do a year in review. So many people do a prospective New Year's resolutions. And I was curious to lean in on that one more. So we've got five broad topics we can jump all around. Were there any of those five which stood out to you? Were there any of them that made you uncomfortable? <sighs> do the one that you like and the one that you don't like. Beautiful. Well, I'm going to start out by saying that none of them make me feel uncomfortable. Sorry Damn about it. that, Joshua. <laughs> Damn it. I so can, that's I, great. There's more on the list, to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I'm also more than happy to be uncomfortable in this conversation, right? I don't mind. Uh, so feel free to, to go to a place where you think I could be uncomfortable. Um, and when it comes to my, my preferences, I'm going to allow myself to be the guest on this podcast and to go like, you know, Joshua this is your show. Like you decide where to start. You decide on the questions and that feels uh -huh. comfortable for me. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. Well, I'm, that first one that I asked, right, at the unflappable, do you get angry in our relationship with our emotions? To me, I've always found it a fascinating subject, right? Like there's this Buddhist concept of right speech, right action, right mind. And I was reading about it. I was really struck by it. And a lot of other friends when I've told them about this idea have almost been alarmed, right? I think in modernity, we're not supposed to talk about something being right because it implies that there's a wrong, right? It creates a lot of kind of controversy, but I think there is like, if we move away from the word right and say appropriate, what is, you know, an appropriate reaction to things. And you seem like a person with a, a level of self-awareness and intentionality. And, you know, there's this separate concept of masculine emotions. What do we show? What don't we show? You also strike me as a private person. So I'd love to hear more about your relationship with your emotions, your relationship with feeling things, showing things. Please do jump in. Opine. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that question. I'm going to start with the, the first question, right? Do I get angry? 
I think that's a really good one. And I feel largely misunderstood because of this by quite a few people. So my answer to this would be, yes, I do get angry. The more interesting part of that is, how does that manifest in the world? What do I do when I'm angry? So I think I've come to the point where I am comfortable enough with my own emotions and my own self that I'm able to provide space for my anger without the need to throw it around in other people. So when I get angry, my first action is usually to just stop and breathe and to acknowledge to myself, I experience anger right now. When I know that I'm experiencing anger, I also know that I will not be in a place where I have the capacity to have a beautiful, open, learning conversation because <laughs> I'm experiencing this anger. So sitting with this anger in a way that creates a sense of self-regulation first will then allow me to come back to say, I'm angry at you. And then I could come back to you and say like, hey, Josh, when you said that, I felt anger. I was really angry and I think I'm angry because, and then I can give some reasons, maybe if I understand where it comes from, but then we can have a conversation. If I were to immediately like allow that anger to dictate my actions in the moment, then I would maybe start, I don't know, arguing with you or trying to be right about something or in extreme circumstances, maybe even scream at you or something like that. Right. But I just don't think that that is, an interesting way to interact with the world that doesn't bring me to a place where I want to be. And that's, that's the key. I think it's the, the key is to understand like, how do I want to be present to the world? What do I want to experience? And is how I act going to bring me closer to what I want to experience or bring me further away from it? So I, I think that's, that's my first kind of like reaction. And I think that there's a level of intentionality that you express, right? Of like feeling it in private, it's just like distilling it, you know, like breathing, distilling it down to something and then figuring out, okay, what is the aspect of this that I need to communicate to another person? Yes. To me, like the thing that I hear all of that, like to me, there's some emotions which are so hot, they just come through, right? And they can see that you're angry, even if you're not saying that you're angry. Um, I had an experience many years ago where, um, it was after my stepfather had passed away and I was dating an amazing woman and going through a lot of stress. We'd never dealt with anything like this. And he was oftentimes coming through his anger and sometimes it was frustration with myself. Sometimes it's frustration with the world. And she was someone who would cry, not necessarily, you know, at the same time, but like I always said, like, I would never ask you not to cry. If you're so overwhelmed that liquid is pulling out of your eyes, I have to let that happen. I have to accept that that's what you're going through. But she couldn't accept my raising my voice. And do you ever experience that such hot thing that it just leaks out that you can't suppress it? Mm, beautiful question. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to make clear that indeed, as you say, it's not about suppressing, right? I would never advocate for like, you know, if you feel so angry that you're going to scream at someone, use all your power to suppress your emotions. That's definitely not what I'm, what I'm saying. Um, I think I've come to a point in my life where that doesn't happen anymore. I think I, first of all, there's two aspects to that. Like I'm so much better at capturing early signs of my emotions. So I don't let it 
come to the point where it feels that it's going to boil over. I'm going to take mm. action before that happens because I'm aware enough of like when I, when the feeling starts. And the second point is that I think I've come to a place where a lot fewer things can make me angry than before. Mm. I am generally in a pretty good place with my own shadows and with my own dark sides. So mm. perceiving those in others towards me doesn't bring up the same level of hotness of emotions as it used to be the case. Mm. What about the sadness emotion, right? Anger is such a, a controversial one and socially frowned upon. Like, do you, do you cry? Do you cry in public? Do you remember the last time you cried? I cry rarely. That's a general thing, right? Yeah. Um, and that's a pity because I love crying. I think crying is a beautiful release of tension. Um, I have other ways of releasing tension that are easier for me to access. I do cry. Um, I sometimes cry in public. Well, when I say public, I mean, let's say I cry with another person <laughs> present yeah, on stage. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is really hard by the way. Like, yeah, I've, I've never been there. Um, but so, yes, I do allow myself to be so vulnerable that I will cry when I am with someone who I know will respect that and will hold space for it in a way that feels beautiful to me. Like I need a high level of trust and intimacy with someone to be able to allow myself to go to the point of crying and coming from a background of trauma and difficult interpersonal relationships, creating that kind of trust and intimacy with me maybe isn't so easy for, you know, like, so, and I'm, yeah. I'm working on that and this is still working progress. And I'm, I feel like I am definitely making progress. I have recently been able to cry with someone who I don't know that well, or, you know, haven't met a long time ago with, with whom I'm still developing a relationship. And that felt really nice. Yeah. I, I would definitely put myself in that same category of, you know, someone who cried occasionally. Um, I did some like a somatic experiencing workshop a little while ago, and a lot of it was trying to get back in touch with these emotions. And I was almost astounded by how easy it was to cry and like how I could go there. And I was like, oh, hmm. it was kind of a neat trick. <laughs> not trick is not the word. But since that experience, I've found sometimes when relaying difficult stories, like I can lean into the emotional place and the vulnerable place. And it kind of comes to the surface more and I'm not sure what to make of it exactly. Right. It's, it's quite curious. Um, I think the thing that I've found is that through the showing of that, right? Like there's a, a friend that we have that has an expression, the more that you show, the more that you grow. Hmm. And I hate this expression because it's so cute, but I like this expression because I have personally found it to be true. <laughs> It also has some weird, almost sexual innuendo, right? Like, the, the, I don't know, there's something wrong about the expression. I need to like sit down and workshop it or something. But for me, I have found that perhaps I kept myself a little guarded or, you know, under control. So it's been really interesting to, to give up some of that control and then find new relationships grow, coming from that, right? Finding people who see me as, being more available and open up to me. It's been really interesting. Hmm. I would like to share something about sadness as well, because that, that seems relevant. I think one of the ways in which 
my self-development has manifested uh, is that I experience less painful emotions than I used to in situations that other people maybe feel is are weird. Um, mm. Quite recently, a person very close to me, um, I found out that they have cancer. And in in them communicating this to me, I noticed that there was an almost immediate, immediate acceptance and a surrender to this idea of like, yes, this person, I love this person very much. This person is very dear to me. I have known them for a very long time. They are mortal. They will die. And so in this communication of receiving the, the message that, you know, they have cancer, they will be treated, but who knows? I did not experience sadness. And the strange thing was that at first I, I judged myself for that. I was like, what kind of a cold hearted bastard am I that this person who's really close to me says they have a cancer and I don't even like feel sad about it. But then later on, I was reflecting on it and I was like, well, maybe sadness is not an appropriate emotion in this situation. <laughs> like people are sad when they hear that other people are going to die because they haven't accepted death or they haven't accepted mortality in general or their own mortality specifically. I think most people will cry in those situations yeah. because it forces them to admit that they too will die. And if you aren't ready to receive that, then you feel very sad. So I see this as a, as a sign that I have more or less come to terms with my own mortality and I know that I will die. And there's this deep acceptance in me somewhere of like, yes, this is just part of life. This is how life is. Death is inevitable. And that's a truth. And so in receiving that communication, I felt something like, I want to support this person. I want to be there in a loving way. I want to help them go through this in the best possible way. But I am not sad with the idea that they might die. It's very powerful. I I relate to a lot of what you just shared there, you know, including you know that experience of receiving. I want to say terminal news, right? And I, it's not that the cancer is terminal, but that the the human condition is terminal, hmm. right? And I think I've also been very comfortable with that. I think that's one of the things that you and I kind of connect on. I think there's the kind of like cinematic version of grief and bad news and loss. And life is much more complicated than Hollywood would have us believe. So, yeah, I, I definitely appreciate you sharing that. And I support you in continuing with perhaps atypical expressions of loss. I'm very curious, you know, this one touches on some of the adjacent questions. How do you think you accepted this reality of mm -hmm. loss, right? On, like on a larger level rather than the specific situation. How did you get comfortable with like the word that comes to mind is existentialism. Like I think there's a heavy, dark version of existentialism, and then there's a certain light, esprit version of existentialism. Saying like, and I'm curious how, in your personal journey, have you always had that? Is this something that grew in time? Is this what wisdom looks like? <laughs> yeah, thank you for that question. I think it's beautiful. Um, I'm not sure I have an answer. I think it's one of those things that is a very slow and gradual process because obviously there is a point, I believe, in early life, in childhood, where a child first is exposed to the idea of death. 
like of what it means that life is not endless. Um, I don't specifically remember when that was for me. I think that might have been, there is one thing that I remember very clearly. And that is that when I was, I think around eight, I had a strong desire to bond with birds. And after a lot of nagging, my mother allowed me to buy a pair of small birds. I don't know what they were. You know, I was eight years old. They were in a pet shop. I saw those birds. I was like, oh, I, I want to, the desire was something like, I want to care for those birds. Right. And so then I had those birds. And I remember one day uh, we, we went for a walk and the birds were out on the terrace, not by my choice, but by the, the man my mother was dating at the time had put them there just to air them or something. But then while we were on a walk, a huge thunderstorm happened. And so there was an extremely cold wind and all of that. And the birds were obviously quite shaken. And then both of the birds died that night. And so I remember feeling, oh, I was absolutely devastated. You know, I, I was, I felt horrible. <laughs> and there was a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. Like, you know, it was, it was my fault that these creatures died. And I, I was so in love with them. That was terrible. And I guess that was one of my first true deep experiences of, of death, of what it means for life to have an end. And ever since then, I imagine thinking about that and encountering that. And later when my grandparents died, for example, you know, that's another stage that we all go through in, in some way. And I remember even already when my grandfather, my grandfather was the first uh, to pass away. And when that happened, I already felt less dramatic about it than most of the people around me. I remember being at his funeral and I remember seeing like a ray of light over the graveyard and my grandfather's ashes being, you know, uh, distributed in the wind. And I felt that to be quite a beautiful moment, actually, for some strange reason. There wasn't, there was a pleasing aesthetic to it almost that fit my experience of like, yes, this person has lived a beautiful, full life. They were old, they have died. And now we are saying goodbye. And so I guess that was another small step towards acceptance. And then maybe writing an opera about death <laughs> has also been a crucial step because, you know, that kind of tends to focus your attention on this subject uh, quite a bit. And the, the text that I used for, for that second opera about death was especially light about the subject. You know, it's the story of death as a gentleman going to a masked carnival party and basically declaring to the people there who have led bad lives, you will die at midnight and they laugh at him and that midnight comes and they all fall dead. And death goes like, well, you know, this is, this is how it goes. You know, <laughs> I'm always right in the end, no matter what you, what you say, no matter who you think you are, no matter how much power you have or how much money you have in the end, I win. And yeah, so writing that opera and, and communicating those ideas, I think, gave me also more chances to interact with this idea of death and to become comfortable with the idea that I will die. But yeah, as I said, I have no clue. I think it's a, it's a long process of discovery and acceptance. And right now it feels pretty good. And maybe that's just a story. Maybe when I actually get closer to my death, whenever that is, my fear will kick in or I will have a very different experience. Who knows? <laughs> Time will tell.
if you had the chance to choose between a sudden unexpected surprise death, dying in your sleep, dying when a helicopter crashes through the roof of your apartment versus, you know, something a little more premeditated, which would you choose? Mm. That's an interesting question. I think I would modulate the question a bit. And the thing I would like to avoid, and I think that's fear, is suffering. I think I do not mind dying, but I don't like suffering. So I think any process of slow approach to death that goes through a lot of suffering, like disease or trauma or whatever it is, I'd prefer to avoid. So then I would say, yeah, I'd prefer to die suddenly, like peacefully in my sleep or in an accident or something like that. That seems more compassionate because there's less suffering. On the other hand, if if there is no suffering and I could perhaps use the time before dying to meaningfully interact with my loved ones and intentionally say goodbye, I would also very much appreciate that process. And I think that could be a beautiful path. And I remember seeing a documentary about some people who choose to end their lives intentionally, uh, people with like uncurable disease and stuff. And I remember being very touched by the final moments of those people and them saying goodbye to their families and then, you know, ingesting the whatever it is that they take and feeling the sense of release. And that was so beautiful as a, as a concept. So yeah, if at all possible, I would like to avoid suffering. But other than that, if I don't have yeah. to suffer, then I would prefer to have the, the possibility of making it into a beautiful ritual of saying goodbye. I mean, it, the rational part of my brain, right? Like, I, I agree with everything you just said. You know, it occurs to me that that euthanasia is always an option, right? The world where you have a degenerative disease, it's too much. I think it's one of those things that's still kind of verboten in society. But, you know, we see this kind of palliative care, slow, painful slipping away, and we see this very abrupt and remembering that there is exists a midpoint, but perhaps being proactive about our own termination is still a little too much for our barbaric contemporary society to contemplate. Mm, yes. We are not there yet. Oh, so all this talk of death brings me to one of the two seer questions that I had tucked away on my page. Mm-hmm. And I say, what the hell, you know, that I threw out all those easy ones. I think that you and I are both men who have been given the privilege of time and the time to contemplate. We have this freedom. We can govern what goes into our day or, you know, slowly climbing the aged ladder. We talk about death. Let's talk about life. (laughs) A simple one. What for you is the meaning of life? Oh, wow. (laughs) Talk about an easy question. Yeah. It's such so few sense, so few words, right? Meaning right. of life. Then, then. Yeah. Um, I have a few problems in my life. One of the problems is that I rarely remember who I quote. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna quote someone, and I don't remember who it was. I think the meaning of life is to make life meaningful. So, and what does that mean? Obviously, and I want to go there because that's that's important. Uh, just to be clear, I don't think life has inherent meaning right there's no such thing as as an external force in my world that gives meaning to my life so the meaning that i give to my life is mine i am 
the the bearer of meaning and the creator of meaning. So what does meaning mean for me? <laughs> um, I think it's something like living a life that brings value to others in a joyful way. So I see life for humans as a collective process, much more than an individual one. I think that obviously there are many aspects of an individual life that I cherish. And I think it's really important to also be in a place where, like you said, where you can have the privilege of time to reflect, to create, to give back. That That's rare. Not everybody has that chance. But if you have it, then for me, definitely what makes life meaningful is creating experiences for others that will help them grow in some way. And that is just, there's no ulterior motive there, right? There's no goal. There's no like people have to achieve a certain thing. It's just that I feel that, you know, when we talk and I say something and that gives you an insight and that in some way changes your life in a meaningful way for you, then that has been a meaningful interaction with me. And I enjoy creating those type of experiences. And a lot of what I'm doing in my life is related to being helpful to others or being, and that relates to also the question that you asked in the beginning about like mentorship, right? I think that the mentorship part is largely also for me, what creating a meaningful life is about. I very much share that sentiment. I think when we talk about, you know, the mortality, you know, and the ephemerality of life, I think in some ways it's a way that we fight that by creating some legacy. Right. And I, I totally agree when you, you didn't say it was a goalless activity, but I think it can be a selfless activity, right? The pleasure that you derive from it is just knowing that somebody else had pleasure, right? Like it's, it's very elegant in its simplicity. And as a source of meaning, I do see our relationships as, you know, being my greatest source of pleasure. I don't, you know, and if you think about having all the things, but not having the relationships or having all the relationships, but not having all the things, it's a, it's a no brainer. Very simple choice. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I think you can de definitely boil it down to that. I think there's just to stir the pot a little bit, right? I always wonder about like the meaning of life for dandelions. And you know, little flowers, uh, the yellow, I'm sure that every country has their own name for them, those little cheap yellow flowers that grow in the garden. And, you know, the, the meaning of life for rhinoceroses and, you know, like bees, right? They've all, they're all very earnestly doing a thing. And I try to figure out if, in fact, our meaning of life is relatively similar to theirs, right? And I think there's a larger meaning of life, not just life as verb but life as noun life as living organisms all of the things that are alive include bacteria and viruses etc and i find that's really fascinating to contemplate yeah i agree with you and i find many unresolvable conflicts there in my mind you know that there's this quote that i come back to often that is something like wisdom is the acceptance of cognitive dissonance and again i forgot who said that <laughs> Um, but I think it's a, it's a very meaningful tool for me to keep understanding that there are thoughts in me that when you combine them clearly are not sense-making in some way. And one of those 
areas where this manifests is indeed what you just said, this idea of like thinking about life and the purpose of life and then thinking about me and the purpose of me are two very different things. I'm very aware of the fact that, you know, we have this genetic material that is in some way trying to reproduce itself or, or evolve in some way. And then I've read a lot also about like our gut bacteria and how the gut bacteria seem to be responsible for a lot of the decisions we make that we think are conscious decisions about what we desire, what we want, which kind of food we eat. When in, in fact, it's just our gut bacteria sending out some chemicals and then having, you know, reactions in our body. And I think the same could be said about a lot of the systems in our body that we don't really know how we relate to. And of course, there's this general emergent concept of consciousness that then looks at all these things and then creates this idea of a, of a meaning of life for the me that I perceive like as one thing that maybe is a combination of many things and many different kind of desires and many different kinds of meanings and many different kinds of directions in life. And yeah, um, I have no answers here. I'm, I'm just trying to perceive what's happening and I'm happy to live within the illusion of free will, let's say. Have you read on the, the modern texts about the illusion of free will stuff? There's a, a book by Robert Sapolsky, which uh, a Stanford guy, super interesting. I think it's called Behave. And mm -hmm. his, his central thesis is, yeah, the more that we look at it, the more free will is illusion. Exactly. Yeah. I, I remember engaging with that subject quite a bit in the past. I haven't recently uh, read anything. Uh, I think the conclusion is still the same. <laughs> like the more you look into it, the, the less there seems to be a free will, but... Yeah. Yeah. It's super. And to me, I almost consciously lean away from some of those questions. I think they, they bring with them such an existential weightiness. Mm -hmm. And I think existentialism can be a choice, right? You can, you build, you know, eat a cake, you know, even though you know it's not good for you, bake a cake, even though, you know, you shouldn't be eating the cake. We'll let the dance continue. Yes. I think that's a, that's a really good thing to, to note. That's an essential element of relating to self for me. That is, deciding which things I will spend my attention on. I think my attention is absolutely my most valuable resource. And sure, I could read about free will or how it doesn't exist all day long. And I find it a fascinating subject. I have the same with the nature of consciousness. Like what, what is it? Where does it come from? We don't know. I could read about that all day long. And there's a number of subjects that I could read on, um, but I choose not to, or I've become a lot more intentional, let's say, with what I give my attention to. And these days, one of my main guidelines is that I try to put my attention on creation aspects. I want to create things. I want to make things that people can then engage with instead of just taking in things like, you know, consuming books or, or movies or no matter how interesting those things are, I, I kind of feel like I want to resist that because I want to, I want to create stuff. So that's where most of my attention goes now is one, always my, my first focus is how do I relate to myself? Am I being kind to myself? Am I being compassionate? How can I improve my relationship with myself? And then in second place is how can I create? How can I add value to the world and to the people around me? That definitely resonates. I think it, it harkens back to that terrifying freedom. Again, if you can choose anything from the menu. Uh, there's a quote here that I just dug up for you that is relevant. 
Mm -hmm. uh, this is E.B. White. E.B. White wrote Charlotte's Web, wrote Stuart Little, who was also editor of The New Yorker. He wrote an amazing essay, Here is New York. He writes, I get up every morning determined to both change the world and have one hell of a good time. Sometimes this makes planning my day difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's a little cute. I'm sure it looks really good on a greeting card. But I think it actually captures a truth, right? Again, like there's with all this freedom. So you were alluding to choosing creativity. And I've, I've had a changing relationship with creativity over my life. Like I, my parents were artists. I went to art school. I love making stuff. It's a great personal pleasure, whether there's an audience for it or not. Right? There's all this other you know, status-seeking parts of it. But it just feels really good. And I totally agree. It, it's certainly better than watching Netflix. Um, at the same time, I find that it can be a bit diminishing returns. Like I think it was so much my parents' value system. And I've been challenging that in myself and saying, like, does it actually yield? Is the juice worth the squeeze? <laughs> How many hours a week should I spend making stuff before you say, hey, maybe that's too much and as a source of happiness, et cetera. So I'm curious, does it still yield that for you? Do you feel like you've hit a plateau on creative mm. output? Well, for me, obviously, the big shift there has been my turning away from art um, I used to be a musician, a composer, so creation, yeah. creativity was my bread and butter and my, my everyday passion. I moved away from that um, very consciously into entrepreneurship, which I believe is a very different kind of creativity. And I think that in entrepreneurship, there seems to be less of a limit to that in, in the sense that when I was making music, the, the best I could do was make the music, you know, as good as I could. And then hopefully that would find an audience and maybe people would be touched by it or transformed by it or anything. Now in entrepreneurship, it feels more like, okay, there are so many things that I can create for others that have value. And the audience for that is virtually unlimited, especially now with the tools that we have at our disposal, we can reach pretty much almost anyone, right? So... I definitely don't feel like there's a plateau there for me or that I have reached any kind of like point of diminishing returns on quite the contrary. I feel there's almost like a flywheel effect. There's this idea that the more I create and the more I put out there, the more people will become aware that this is happening and the more people will be able to then engage with that material. Um, so yeah, no, I don't feel that yet at all. I think I run into different problems, which are more like, personal considerations of like, you know, I don't believe myself to be good enough to put stuff in the world in a certain way, or, um, yeah, maybe I have a hard time fighting this idea that I don't want things to be about me. So I, I tend to procrastinate putting stuff out there <laughs> because it's like, yeah, it points at me, yeah. who am I? Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not important. So there's different problems, but I definitely don't think that I have reached this point where I feel like there's diminishing returns in my creation process now. Mm. I, it harkens back to that question of how do we allocate our day, right? And like I, when I'm designing an interface, I think about what are the verbs that a user can do, right? They can read this page, they can sign up, they can, you know, like press a button that causes an action. I'm curious, like when I look at the, my day, right? All human beings have a couple of verbs, right? Of like we sleep, we eat, 
presumably we communicate. And then thinking about those secondary and tertiary verbs that, you know, okay, there's work, right? There's communication as a part of work. It sounds like, you know, creating podcasts is now part of your life. What are the other verbs that are in your day? I think particularly the perhaps more novel ones, whether it's meditating or things that not everybody does. I'm curious. What a beautiful question, Ashwam. I really like this one. Huh. I will speak to the verbs that are consistent in my life, right? Not not the ones that I wish <laughs> that I had. <laughs> um, what comes up is certainly meditation. So meditating as a verb is something that I am committed to and that I normally do every day. And then, of course, sometimes I fail, but that's okay. Um, I would say dancing is something that I have reached a certain level of consistency with. And when I say dancing, I just mean me in my living room, moving to some music in whatever way I want. Um, I would say writing has become an important one. I feel like a lot of my deep work practice has improved a lot now that I write by hand. I, I purposely, you know, use pen and paper, and I know that you are with me on that one as well. <laughs> um, what else? I think exercise is one also that I definitely feel has had a big impact on the quality of my life. I would say walking is a verb that I don't want to miss. And then huh, I will add one that I, well, I didn't steal it. I can just use it, but it's one that I read in Brené Brown's book for the first time, which is couraging, uh, practicing the, the art of courage. And yes, that is also something that has become a part of my daily striving where every day I try to be courageous and look at what I'm avoiding or step into something that feels difficult or that I'm afraid of or communicate something that feels icky. You know, that's definitely also part of that. That's I'm, I'm very curious to hear more about how it manifests, right? Like it sounds a little bit like doing something that's intimidating. Like when I, when I was cramming for my Spanish exam, when I, a couple of years ago, I was, you know, taking classes for five hours a day. And I said, every day I was living in, in Spain, I was like, I'm going to do something hard and I'm going to do something as a treat. And you kind of, every day, you know, what's going to make my hard thing. Uh, I'm going to have a conversation, you know, with somebody who doesn't speak English. Okay. That's going to be my hard thing. Is it something like that? Is it just finding the resistance and leaning into the resistance? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good way to put it what am I resisting and then going there <laughs> or what am I fearing and then going towards the fear instead of running away from it or feeling attention. And instead of numbing yourself to not feel the tension, actually engaging with the tension and seeing where it comes from and potentially how to resolve it. And that often means communicating something really difficult to someone close or taking action on something that you've been postponing for a long time, but that, you know, you actually have to do. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Somebody described something recently. They were saying like, really all you need is like five seconds of courage, <laughs> right? You want to ask somebody out, you know, you, it's really, you just start the conversation and then you're kind of falling down a hill. And I was like, well, here it goes. It's beyond your control now. <laughs> and I'm intrigued by that as a, a concept. Like sometimes I'll pre-write an email. Right? Like it's a difficult email. And all you really have to do is 
press the send button. And they're like, there's so much. Five seconds of courage, and then you're done. Yeah, yeah, I relate to that. Deal with the consequences. I, I very recently had one like that where I, I had felt for a while that the communication with a certain person in my life somehow didn't feel joyful or didn't feel good anymore. And I was like, actually, do I want to keep communicating with this person? And then I decided like, no, I, I would prefer not to communicate with this person right now. That's what I feel. And then you have to communicate that. And I had made that decision to communicate that, but it took me quite a few weeks to then get to the point where I had the courage to actually sit down and go like, okay, I'm going to do this now. And the moment I took my phone to record that voice note to that person, like, oh my God, such resistance, such fear, you know, all these things come up. And that's exactly when I said like, no, now is the time to have these five seconds of courage and go through all these emotions that come up and record the message anyway. And I did. And, you know, that feels relieving. Mm. That makes perfect sense. I'm intrigued also, you know, that, that second verb that you referenced, dancing. That's one... I don't hear too many people make reference to. And um, you know, there's there's two, you know, this fear people talk about public speaking, right? And I guess we're doing semi-public speaking right now. Um, fear of dancing, you know, fear of being in public. I think it's so interesting. I'm assuming that when you're talking about dancing on a daily basis, that's more just dancing around your house. Yeah. So, um, well, there's two aspects of that. I I definitely feel that ecstatic dance as a practice has tremendously helped me navigate my relationship with my body. And obviously ecstatic dance is usually in public. You know, you dance with a bunch of people or you dance not with people, but you dance while other people are also dancing around you. So you are being perceived as dancing and there are people watching you maybe. And I have had at times, you know, anxiety around like, how am I being perceived right now? Because the whole point of ecstatic dance is also that you allow your body to move in whichever way it wants to move without judging that yourself. But then obviously what comes up for me very often in ecstatic dance is I will be judged by others around me because my moves are terrible or something. Um, and so this, this ecstatic dance practice, I now in the circumstances that we currently have with COVID, uh, I don't want to expose myself to groups of people in inside spaces. So instead I dance with myself at home. And obviously here it's a very different question because there is nobody to perceive me or except perhaps my neighbors because I have a big window and I, I don't care. I just dance in my underwear. And I think it's just a, and it has become an essential part of how I relate to myself. Again, it's this like the somatic experience of me in my body, in my body moving through space is something really beautiful that connects me to myself and that brings me layers of truth that maybe otherwise I wouldn't be able to access. And it took me quite a while to get there because I've tried other somatic practices that didn't do anything for me. So, uh, you know, it's really about finding the one that works. And for me, dance apparently is, is one that works. And again, when I say dance, I, I, it almost feels like, you know, I'm using a word that feels like, um, if I'm drawing something, like I can't draw for the life of me. I'm a really bad drawer. So I don't want to use the word drawing to signify that I take a pencil and move it around on paper. In the same way, when I say dance, it almost feels dance is such a beautiful art that I admire. And I love going to like contemporary dance performances. And that's not at all what I'm doing, right? I'm just allowing myself to move my body mm. uninhibited on music that I like. Mm. And that's it. And yeah, I, I try to do that 
maybe not every day, but at least once in two days. Mm. So there's a couple pieces that come up from that, right? And like, first of all, I, I love the details that you shared there. Like, I do know how to draw and I don't know how to sing and you know how to sing. And the thing is, I technically can sing. I could sing right now. It just would be terrible. <laughs> you can draw, you know, I'm not going to call it terrible, but you know, it might not be to your satisfaction, but I'm so intrigued by that fear to begin the, the discomfort with being terrible that we never even commence mm-hmm. and that we hold ourselves back when this idea of a self-definition to, I am a person that does not sing. I am a person that dances in this way, not that way. You know, the idea, uh, we have a friend who danced in public. Right. And just alone, would people think she's crazy? Who knows? Right. Yeah. Yeah. For me, and, I, I, oh, I think they, overcoming that fear, right. They, the fear of being bad. Yeah. Uh, there's a Japanese book called the courage to be disliked. Mm-hmm. And I think the courage to be embarrassed, right. The courage to make a mess, see what happens. Yeah. I, I think that the word that comes up for me that has been really important for me to change that is this idea of shamelessness. Like, I don't want to feel shame about what is actually true, what I am, who I am, what I can and cannot do. That is nothing to be ashamed of because it's true. <laughs> it's very simple. Um, so that I've, I've observed people that I feel have a certain sense of shamelessness. And that has inspired me to become less inhibited myself in expressing myself or in allowing myself to do things including even drawing or playing around with, you know, stuff on paper. Um, but yeah, you're right. This, there is so much to be gained in getting rid of that fear that I think it's something we should be focused on in rather early age, even like let's, let's just help everyone overcome the fear of self-expression at an early age because the, the, the gains of that are so tremendous. Agreed. Should have the people do it. I have no idea how we're going to teach that to kids, but in some ways, I think you look at like a like baby learning to walk. Right? They fall and they fail and they fall and yeah, they fail. They don't care. And then they, they stop falling so much. Yeah. No, I think shame shame is learned in many in many ways, right? And I think that it's I think it's easy when you ask the question, "How will we teach this to children?" Lead by example. It's very simple. If a child is surrounded by adults who shamelessly dance around and draw whatever it is that comes up, then the child would be inspired to do the same. I, I think it's really not that difficult. Says as a man with no children, <laughs> two guys with no kids talking about how to teach kids. Perfect. Uniquely unqualified. Yes. So yes. So there's a million more questions that I have on my page. We're definitely not going to cover them. So I suppose that we will leave those for other guests. Um, I had my favorite section, the really trippy philosophical questions. Um, If you could be born at any time in history, right? We wrestle with modernity. We talk about, oh my God, the world's going down the tubes. You get to choose when you live. 10,000 years ago, you could live as a caveman. You could do whatever you want. 10,000 years in the future when we're all in a tube. Yeah. Well, there's, there's this one period of, of history that is fascinating to me, mostly because of my love for music. And so whenever I get asked this question, that's my answer. I would love to be born in the second half of the 16th century in the north of Italy. Uh, there's something happening in music 
in towards the end of the 16th century, like the the change from basically the Renaissance uh, style to the Baroque style, that is incredible. Specifically between 1590 and 1610 in and around Venice. I would have loved to be in Venice from 1590 to 1610 and just feel that happen and see that happen and be in those places you know that would have been incredible and i'm pretty sure that would be a, a shitty life from many other perspectives i think you know difficult and i think i have a much more beautiful and comfortable life right now but yeah from a cultural perspective that would be a period of time that i would i would love to experience interesting and would you would go into it as a young man would you want to be 20 years old Oh, do you want to be 40 years old, 60 years oh, old? Are you going to be a patron of the arts? Right. Being like throwing your money at the talented people? Would you like to be? I don't know, Josh. I, <laughs> I honestly don't know. <laughs> I think there are things to be said for, for any of those examples, but um, I just want to be around. I just, well, maybe let's say that I would love to be of the age that makes me seen as a potential conversation partner by specifically Claudio Monteverdi, for example, which is one of the composers I admire. So obviously, if, if I'm like a 15-year-old boy, he's not going to pay attention to me. So I'd, I'd like to be of age and position so that I can meaningfully interact with this person and, and try to understand what, what happens in their mind. That makes perfect sense. I think that leads to perhaps a nice philosophical closing question. You've seen a couple years in your life. Do you have a favorite age to be? Yes, my favorite age to be is now. Absolutely, now. unequivocally, absolutely, yes. Um, I feel very directly that my life has been improving continuously. And I wouldn't trade my current state for a more youthful body or something like that. Like, no way. There's nothing in the world that could make me do this. Because my experience of life as I am now is so beautiful and joyful and simple. And oh, I, I love being alive right now. And historically, that wasn't always the case. So I definitely love right now. Perfect answer. I'll take it. <laughs> I look forward to being whatever age you are now. <laughs> I don't think it's about age though, Josh. That's the that's the tricky no. part about that. <laughs> Damn it. You're saying that I can be that same favorite age of being now, right I, now. I don't know where you are in your process and where you could be, but you will find out. <laughs> I I definitely agree. I wouldn't there's so many good fortunes that we've had. And to rewind the clock and have the little stochastic random generator spit out a different universe. I'm like, I don't know if I'm willing to give up some of these niceties. Pretty sweet. So I'm with you. Well, this has been a pleasure. I hope it scratched some existential itches for you. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you so much, Josh, for, for coming on again, for doing this, for preparing the questions that they were really good. I enjoyed this very much and I feel maybe we should even do like a second round of this because it feels like you have many more meaningful questions <laughs> that maybe are not directly related to like, you know, the idea of relating to self, but are somewhat adjacent and could be interesting for people out there. Yeah. There's many more things. I mean, my backup, you know, if I woke up with a hangover or something like that was just to go down the Proust questionnaire <laughs> one at a time, <laughs> have you answer pithy one word sentences. I'm a big fan. So. Beautiful. Let's do it again sometime. Great. 2023. It's going to be here before you know it. 
<laughs> Joshua, thank you so much. Um, have a beautiful day, I guess, where you are. And I look forward to seeing you again in real life, my friend. Indeed, I feel likewise. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also read more of my thoughts on Twitter. I will post a link in the description. And if you are interested in improving your relationship with yourself, please subscribe to my email list at relatingtoself.com. I will then send you meditations, rituals, practices, and more of these beautiful conversations. Thanks. Thanks.